This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> I hear that call and response. No, that's good. Make me feel right at home. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Whitworth University. Uh, we are delighted to uh, be a part of a nationwide uh, celebration, recognition, um, and commemoration of Native American history. This is Native American History Month, and this evening, we are uh, really blessed and honored uh, to have with us um, a very special scholar, uh, minister of the gospel, uh, member of the First Nation people, this land, Dr. Randy Woodley, and he's joined uh, also by his wife, Edith Woodley. Uh, my name is Larry Burnley. I serve Whitworth as the Associate Vice President for Diversity, Eth uh, Equity, and Inclusion, and I also have the um, privilege of serving as Assistant uh, Professor for History. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Woodley. Um, he has been on campus all day today, and it has been truly uh, an enlightening and really inspiring and eye-opening experience as we uh, have been blessed with um, his narrative, and he and his wife, um, and, and, and his understanding of the gospel through his uh, Native American identity. Um, and you'll hear, of course, a lot more about that this evening. Dr. Randy Woodley. Uh, serve as, serves as Distinguished Professor of Faith and Culture and Director of Intercultural and Indigenous Studies at George Fox Seminary in Portland, Oregon. He is a founding board member of the North American Institute of, for Indigenous Theological Studies and Director of the MA Intercultural Masters uh, of Arts and Intercultural Studies program which is a partnership between the Institute and George Fox Seminary. Dr. Woodley is a descendant of Oklahoma's United Kituwa Band and Cherokee of the Cherokee Indians, and he has been involved in mentoring indigenous leaders for nearly three decades. With his wife, Edith, he is co-founder of Eagle's Wings Ministry, they are considered early missiological innovators in the Native American cultural contextual movement. The Woodleys maintain the Elohe Farm and Elohe Village for Indigenous Leadership Development, a permacultural, I'm sorry, a permaculture regenerative teaching farm. Um, School and Community in Newburgh, Oregon. His most recent book is Shalom and the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision. Um, he, and this book, along with another publication, will be available to you here uh, in the lobby, and he will stick, stick around and sign copies for that book. And I really encourage you, it's an important read um, for us uh, as, as, a, as a people. 
Dr. Woodley has spoken globally. He's um, written numerous articles. Um, he's quoted often uh, and sought after by the Huffington Post, uh, Moody Radio, and Time Magazine. Tonight, Dr. Woodley will examine the history of European settler colonialism and Christian mission among Native North Americans, stories of First Nations from the past to current Native American life and indigenous spirituality. After Dr. Woodley shares with us, we will have just a time for conversation, uh, time for question and answers. Um, we're gonna honor the time. We're gonna conclude no later than 8.30. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, this is a special evening um, and to have uh, a servant of God, a vessel of the great spirit, uh, Dr. Randy Woodley, please help me to uh, welcome him in the warm Spokane Whitworth way. It's an hour past. Okay. I was going to say, if that clock's right, I have 25 minutes to do all of this. <laughs> Which one? Oh, okay, I can't see that because of the lights. Let's see. So anybody know why Indians used to look at, look this way out on the plains? Oh, same thing, lights over here. You know, you know why that was? Because the sun was in their eyes, right? You always see the picture of the Indian looking like this. Oh, there we go. I can see the digital. Yeah, thank you. So um, the first thing I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is... Uh, Acknowledge the people of this land. Um, this land uh, was uh, given by Creator to the Spokane people, and uh, I want to acknowledge the fact that I'm standing on Spokane land. I understand that the Cordelline and Kalispell also have uh, some claims around here. And so, is there anybody here from any of those three tribes right now? So, two, two people, just two. All right, I'm just asking you to accept my gift of tobacco here. Okay. Thank you. What I'd like to do is just begin with a, a prayer song and uh, ask you to stand. And we just remember the people who have uh, given up their lives, their families, and this land. The words of the song in English are very simple. It says, uh, and because of my voice is about God, I can only sing this through twice, so forgive me for not singing it through four times. Um, but uh, Creator, when you look down, um, have pity on me because I'm just a human being. What a cool I say, ah, hey, ah. What a cool I say, ah, hey, ah, hey, ah. What a cool I say, ah, hey, ah. What a cool I say, ah, hey, oh. I say, ah, hey, ah, hey, ah. What a cool I say, ah, hey, ah. What a cool. Say, 
I think it's safe to say that uh, land is important to everyone. Um, but as uh, Western colonial settler folk, it becomes a little bit different in how uh, the land is looked at. And so um, if you can imagine um, a place where your, uh, not just your family has developed, your religion has developed, your spirituality has developed, the, there's a reciprocity back and forth between the land and all the creatures and all creation, um, uh, stories about that land, ceremonies that take place on that land, on and on and on, for at least 13,000 years, then you have an idea of who our native people are in relationship to the land. Um, so it's old land, it's old experience. Um, in the Western way of looking at land, it's sort of like we come, we uh, put a template over according to where we come from, a template on the land, and, and we say this is New England or New York or New Orleans or something like that. And, and whatever happened here before doesn't really matter. So um, as I start talking about the land from the beginning, I want us to acknowledge that, that we look at it in two different ways. Um, this... Um, uh, I don't know if anyone's read the book by uh, Charles Mann, 1491, but it's pretty revolutionary in terms of what it, it produced. Um, the, the book was one of the first to come out to, to talk about native use of the land as compared to some of the older theories of disuse. So uh, basically disproved the whole vacant lot theory. And I have all that stuff up to remind you who I am, but mostly I have all that up for two reasons. One is uh, I want you to think that I'm a smart guy because I married such a wonderful woman. Yeah. So um, that's probably the best move I've ever made. And second, I want you to know that we take our uh, planting and farming seriously, and this is our corn. So I'm kind of proud of that corn. Um, that's uh, actually Cherokee Flint corn that has uh, traveled um, from, uh, um, from uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, out to Oklahoma, from Oklahoma, out to Oregon. And as it turns out, it doesn't do too bad. Um, it's not 14 feet high, like it grows in Cherokee country, but it's pretty good corn. So, so James Baldwin said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. <coughs> Many of you probably know that's true. Uh, if you've taken any courses in American history, um, hopefully you've learned about our past. Um, but uh, I have this picture up because it's a, actually a, a computer 
reconstruction after an archaeological dig by the uh, University of Tennessee on the village of Tokwa. Tokwa was one of the villages that my third great-grandfather was a chief in. He was a what they call a village chief um, or a, uh, a domestic chief. Uh, we didn't just have one chief. But, um, but that's the only one I've been able to find of uh, one of the villages that he was a part of. Um, and uh, so I look at that. That's now underwater. So they did this before the Tennessee Valley uh, flooding and uh, that's all underwater now, so the most I can do is look at that. Um, as we think about time, not just land, but as we think about time, we think differently uh, according to our worldviews. So this is um, a friend of mine, uh, David Harrelson. He's the director of tribal historic preservation for the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. And this is their view of it, and I'm not going to try and explain their view, but I just want to say... Um, that when we think of land as indigenous people, generally we think in terms uh, not of just future and past, but uh, sort of them together, and we also think of the landscape as part of that. So we're not thinking of ourselves outside of the land when it comes to time. So it all sort of mixes together. One of the things that um, some um, anthropologists determined back in the 60s, the early 60s, um, uh, was that um, Westerners and indigenous folks see time differently. So um, we, we laugh about it. We call it Indian time sometimes, but, um, and also white man's time. And uh, uh, what they said was that uh, Western folks generally are present and future-oriented, and indigenous folks are present and past-oriented. That doesn't mean we just think in the past, but what it means is that we see the future through the lens of the past. So what's been done before? What's worked before? What's helped us before? And then we know how to move forward. That's why our elders are so important. The other thing I'd like to say is to make sure that you understand that um, I'm not speaking for any uh, other indigenous people except for myself. I'm not even speaking for my wife unless she tells me I can do that. But... Uh, um, so, uh, so I'm giving you one person's uh, understanding of um, many different cultures, and I'm by no means am an expert on every tribal culture or anything like that. So, um, so I love this quote from Winston Churchill, right? He said, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. And sure enough, he did. And sure enough, it was. And so uh, the winners always end up writing the history that sort of uh, gets listened to. But there are other histories. I always tell my students there's no such thing as history. There's only histories. So um, I was tooling through a, a library one day, and uh, I saw a bunch of 10-cent books for sale. And one of them was a book on uh, American Indians, it said. And I thought, oh, I wonder what this old, you know, 1958 or 60 or whatever it is uh, book's going to say about Indians. This would be a laugh to look through. And I looked in the beginning, and who wrote the foreword but John F. Kennedy. And uh, he seemed to understand something that we've forgotten. He said, for a subject worked and reworked 
So often in novels, motion pictures, and television, American Indians remain probably the least understood and most misunderstood Americans of us all. And this is the, I think, one of the most important parts. Collectively, their history is our history and should be part of our shared and remembered heritage. When we forget great contributors to our American history, when we neglect the heroic past of the American Indian, we thereby weaken our own heritage. We need to remember the heritage of our forefathers found here and from which they borrowed liberally. If you want to see how much they borrowed liberally, read a book called Dreamcatchers um, by Philip Jenkins. So, so in other words, what he's saying is that our history, Western history, uh, Western American history, doesn't begin in, um, with the founding of the United States. It doesn't even begin in 1492. It begins millennia, many millennia before that. So um, next, where are we at? Today is Tuesday? This Thursday? No, next Thursday, a week from Thursday, I'll be uh, moderating an event um, uh, called the Gospel of Conquest, Understanding the Doctrine of Discovery in uh, Portland. And that'll be an all-day event. Um, and we'll be talking about how um, the doctrine of discovery was set up to justify uh, taking of the land um, from indigenous peoples all over the world. Um, but basically, they, they saw it as a vacant lot. Um, and uh, in uh, some words, and it was by coincidence, and after Columbus had uh, gotten lost and ended up uh, down in the Caribbean uh, and got found by native peoples, um, he, uh, uh, that was 1492, and, and the Pope uh, hears from God, and God says, you know, in 1493 that if any Christian peoples discover land uninhabited by Christians, that the Christians can take over that land. So, um, and that begins what we call now the doctrine of discovery. But, of course, America was already inhabited. So, why? Why the discovery doctrine? Um, it's important that you know what it is because it upholds the right for European uh, peoples to be on native lands. The international law is expounded by the U.S. Supreme Court in a series of decisions. Um, the most famous is probably Johnson versus McIntosh, 1823, where Chief, Judge, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall justified the way in which colonial powers laid claims to lands belonging to foreign sovereign nations. The doctrine has been primarily used to support decisions in validating or ignoring indigenous possession of land in favor of colonial or post-colonial governments. Marshall found that ownership of land comes into existence by virtue of discovery of that land, a rule that had been observed by all European countries with settlements in the New World. Um, that actually uh, 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 was a decision was made three years ago in the state of Wisconsin that drew upon the doctrine of discovery against the nation there. Um, discovery doctrine has been severely condemned as socially unjust, racist, and in violation of basic and fundamental human rights. The UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues noted doctrine, discovery doctrine as the foundation of the violation of their, in, their uh, human rights in 2012 called for a mechanism to investigate historical land claims. One of my favorite writers is a, a 
Seneca man, he passed away a few years ago, named John Mohawk, and uh, he has a book, um, several books, but one of the, my favorites is called uh, Utopian Legacies, and he said this, for the most part, contemporary historians have proceeded from the presumption that modern people are different from and superior to those who came before, especially those designated as primitives. Distortions and incomplete and even dishonest renderings of the past are found in many modern accounts of ancient peoples and contemporary primitive peoples, quote unquote. These ancient accounts serve to reinforce a sense of difference and to distance moderns from unflattering legacies of the past. And then there were racist scientific theories, right, that, um, that also continued what we would call myths, um, myths against Native Americans. Um, so um, one of the ones that you can still see today is, is uh, called uh, um, Ancient Discoveries. Anybody watch that? Ancient Discoveries is on the History Channel. So, um, you know, who made these mounds and who made these uh, giant structures with, you know, exact precision and who laid out these roads? Because Native Americans couldn't have done it, so it must have been aliens, right? So, um, and that's just continuing a long legacy of attributing um, uh, ignorance and uh, uh, unskilled uh, know-how to Native Americans, which is part of the American myth. The other, another one was the pseudoscience of cr craniology, <coughs> which basically um, taught that um, different, there are different races, when in fact there's actually only one, the human race, of, uh, the race of humans. Um, and, and each has different uh, cranial capacity. Some have higher learning capacity and others don't. Um, and uh, as they were studying this, one of the things that they would do is that the uh, early anthropologists, um, medical doctors, um, curators at the Smithsonian and other places would, would travel to Indian burial sites to, um, with military uh, units uh, during skirmishes, um, and they would cut off Native American heads and hands and feet but mostly heads, and they would take them back to Washington, D.C. in particular, and study them. Um, to me, it seems a lot easier if, if you want to find out from a Native person, you know, what's in their mind that you just sit down and talk to them. But I guess that is uh, part of that disembodied uh, dualism that accompanies um, the Western mindset sometimes. Um, and so today, um, after NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Repatriation and Protection Act, um, a, a lot of those were actually given back to the tribes. Um, but even today, there's still over 100,000 body parts, mostly heads, of Native people in the Smithsonian and a number of other museums around the United States that are labeled culturally unidentifiable. This should be making you squirm that other human beings have been treated this way throughout history. So we're taught in school about ancient Greece, China, Egypt, but what about ancient American history? Our great civilizations had unparalleled techniques in micro-agriculture, macro-environmental management, 
ecology, xeriscape, agronomy, botany, forestry, raised beds, naturally fertilized gardens, sustainable architecture, humanities, including psychology, philosophy, religion, rhetoric, languages, the arts, ethics, sciences, including math, medicine, surgery, dentistry, urban planning, democratic governments, education systems, intercontinental economic trade, and complex peacemaking strategies. But I'm pretty sure most of you didn't learn that in school. <coughs> the native people of this hemisphere led a life that was in many ways much healthier and more tolerant of diversity than the European peoples. Um, to my knowledge, there's never been a war on this continent among indigenous people about religion. Um, Europe can't say the same. Um, Native people utilize thousands of medicines and drugs, many of which are the basis of many of today's modern medicines. Much of Native medicinal knowledge and practice has been lost due to destruction of cultures, but even today over 500 medicines and herbal remedies are still used in modern medical treatment that were first used by the first peoples of America. Um, and you can see a few of these. I like this quote from 1491. Having grown separately for millennia, the Americas were a boundless sea of novel ideas, dreams, stories, philosophies, religions, moralities, discoveries, and all other products of the mind. So, so when you're taught American history and you don't hear this part of the history, you should ask yourself, it seems like there's something wrong with the story. Um, so uh, anyone here ever been to Poverty Point, Louisiana? Um, it's one of the World Heritage's, Heritage Sites by UNESCO. Um, it was a commercial and governmental trade center. Um, had the largest, most elaborate earthworks anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. Cahokia, maybe that's a little closer, St. Louis, East St. Louis. Actually, um, all of East St. Louis was mounds, but they only preserved a certain part of it. Uh, one of the largest urban centers in the world in its day. Uh, Apex was about 1200 A.D. Um, it was surpassed in size in 1800 A.D. by Philadelphia, long after it declined. And you see in all these ancient structures, you'll see a... Uh, Now, how do I point? That's the next thing. There we go. Can you see that? Okay, so a lot of our structures, uh, these ancient American structures from all different cultures, had these kinds of either rocks, stones, um, uh, windows laid out. Um, this is, they call this at uh, Cahokia, they call this wood hinge. Basically, in line with the uh, the seasons, the summer solstice, the winter solstice. Um, and so they were basically observatories, and uh, so people would know when to plant and, and uh, all of these kinds of things. And the Mayan calendar, some of that is based on some of this. And, and so almost every one of these old structures that they find, they, they always find something along those lines. 
Um, the Mississippian culture is where my people come out of. Um, you can see how large it was. It was uh, uh, almost a third or, or maybe just more than a third of the uh, uh, eastern United States and parts of Canada. Um, the Mississippian culture were the mound builders. Um, the archaeologists like to break that down into different segments and different peoples, but pretty much um, they're often similar peoples. Um, um, down in uh, uh, New Mexico, um, there's Chaco Canyon. I have Arizona. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, uh, anyway, it's supposed to be New Mexico. Um, and uh, Chaco Canyon, anyone been there? You have. Okay, great. Um, uh, a major center for culture of the ancient Pueblo peoples. There's a lot of these places like these around, but this, these are sort of the bigger ones. Um, by 1115, at least 75 outlying cities had been built within 30,000 square miles, composing agricultural communities, trading posts, and ceremonial sites in the San Juan Basin. They were connected to a central canyon and to one another by six major Chacoan roads. These main roads extended to at least another 60 roads, well-researched and surveyed in general straight routes, lit up at night as signal fires. Chaco also served as an astrological observatory. And um, that's right there in um, northwestern New Mexico, if you want to go visit them. Um, it would have looked something like this inside. Um, very egalitarian society. Um, both men and women led uh, did art, did farming, all of the things that needed to be done. The Holcomb culture, or the Pima Papagos, who became the Pima Papago people, um, also have uh, in the Sonoran Desert, circa 2000 BCE, um, engineered uh, for centuries a complex series of canals, weirs, irrigation networks, with features of remarkable genius, rivaling sophistication of those used in the ancient Near East, Egypt, and China. Casa Grande is a notable structure that served as an, also as an astrological observatory. Um, so this is basically your Phoenix uh, area in north of there. The Holcomb culture, uh, 500 miles of canals, irrigated 110,000 acres. Food produced by this advanced irrigation systems and believed to have supported up to about 80,000 people. Um, the highest population density in the prehistoric southwest. Um, today, Phoenix, uh, I've been down there before, and they discover another canal uh, related to this culture. Um, they've used them for moving water. They've used them for bicycle paths and other kinds of things, so they're always excited to, to find those. But um, um, I'm thinking maybe the state of California might want to look into the technology that was used here. So, so what about the Northwest and the um, Columbia Basin culture? So. So the, where I live down, uh, just I live in the Willamette Valley, which is really sort of the first settlement in the area, um, but very much this whole Columbia Basin was a part of it for uh, Europeans as they came across. Um, there's some things in common, um, different histories, uh, different cultures, but there are some cultural similarities in terms of how things progressed. <coughs> so, um, so what was the genius here? besides incredible art, um, unsurpassed basketry, and those kinds of things. Um, basically, um, from uh, a lot of uh, folks who uh, know the sciences, they say that um, for about a 400-mile strip of the 
the Northwest Coast, um, including British Columbia, probably housed about one-third of all Native Americans in the continent. Um, so land produced in abundance. And they say that probably there was not a drought up until the last 200 years um, in all that time, I think 6,000 years of recorded history uh, that, that they can find on the record, no droughts. Um, so, um, so the gift of the cultures of the Columbia Basin and the Northwest cultures was to supply abundance of food and to feed a lot of people and to, for a lot of people to live. Um, so that could mean between 20 to 60 million people, depending on uh, your population estimates of, the United, of what would be the um, North America at the time. So how do people come to America? There's lots of places. A lot of our people will say, we didn't come here, we've always been here, okay. Um, other people say that some, we know some people came here. Um, so probably from at least 13,000 years, possibly up to 27,000 years ago. Um, one of the most um, probably popular paths was not the Beringia, which is what we were taught when I was a, a student, but probably traveling on the kelp beds. And um, if you can uh, see here, um, Japan, Korea, China, Russia, and all of these are kelp forests. And a person can actually travel in a, a small kayak-type uh, boat or a larger boat and live off the kelp beds, um, travel around and make it to the Americas and populate from, from this side. Same thing could be said over here. Um, and uh, there are theories of, of people coming from New Zealand over to South America. We know that the Hawaiians and the South Americans made it back and forth. We have records in the Pacific uh, Northwest that of people that basically described the Maoris who left some artifacts that are Maori artifacts there, um, traveled here. Um, so um, there was this um, ancient travel that really um, was pretty advanced uh, for their day. Um, but we, when we think back there, we don't think in those terms, right? Uh, we just think, oh, everybody was just in their place. Well, that wasn't true. So. When I did my doctoral dissertation, um, uh, I, I wanted to find out what these, in Cherokee we have a, a construct of a harmony, a harmony way. You see, most of our uh, beliefs, are, the way we live is, is based on harmony, uh, balance, and uh, understanding how to keep life in balance. And our job as is, uh, Cherokee people is, you know, we, we sort of, when things get out of balance on the land, we have ceremony and we bring things back in balance. That's kind of our prescription from Creator, how we're supposed to be. And um, so I found out about this Shalom uh, biblical, mostly from um, Terry McGonigal sitting here. Um, and, uh, and I said, well, we've got Cherokee uh, uh, word for that. It's called Elohe. Um, and I, I wondered, I, I knew that the Navajos had a hojonk and that uh, other people had similar constructs, and so I wanted to find out um, how widespread that is. So basically, um, I did my dissertation um, trying to examine that among 45 different um, tribes in the United States and Canada, and found that they all had uh, uh, similar kinds of uh, constructions of a harmony way. Um, and um, different names, of course, uh, but, but then I needed to unpack what the values are in those. 
and I found 10 values that were common among 45 tribes. And by the way, that was all 45 tribes. There were none that said, we don't have these. Um, and, and they came out to, to these values, um, things like tangible spirituality, life being governed by harmony, uh, a community instead of the individual being um, uh, essential, uh, women being sacred, children loved, elders respected, families viable, viable, uh, vital, excuse me, everyone related in some way. Um, humor being sacred and necessary, so um, uh, we always have fun with this as uh, you know, people. Um, so, uh, uh, but that's part of the balance. If we get too serious, we need to maybe make a joke, you know, or uh, cut up a little bit or something so that things can, can kind of be in balance, um, both impromptu and in designed in ceremonies. So, um, one time I was down with the, the Hopi tribe, and uh, we were on the uh, rooftops of uh, the village, and, and there was a ceremony going down, and uh, it was a bean dance, and, and they have sacred clowns that are part of it, and so the sacred clowns go around, and they tease people, and they say things, and of course, me and my Choctaw friend who was with me, we were about a foot higher than all the rest of the people, so we couldn't fit in very well. But, um, but they were all laughing, and we were sitting there because we don't speak Hopi, right? So I, I said, you know, what's, what's to my friend? What's, uh, what's he saying? And my, my Hopi friend said, oh, that, that clown, he's, he's telling that guy off, and everybody's laughing at him. And I said, yeah, what's he saying? He said, well, you know, he's saying, you know how you're supposed to be all spiritual and all that? Well, how come on Friday nights we see your truck leave your house late, and then in the morning it's at widow so-and-so's house, you know? And they were all laughing at that, you know. So the clowns had a, uh, sacred clowns had a, a role to play. Um, and uh, so shaming and laughing and those kinds of things. And so um, uh, I remember uh, one time being in a crow sweat lodge and it was really hot and really serious and everybody was hurting. And uh, then all of a sudden he said, okay, now it's time to make a joke. Who's got a joke, you know, so... Nobody did, so they started making fun of all the visitors, right? So um, uh, humor is important. Um, in, in, in fact, you know, I think that's probably, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, uh, so if you came here to learn an Indian secret tonight, this is, a, this is a real Indian secret. One of the things that Indians say about white people is it says, how come they're so serious all the time, right? Like, so lighten up, lighten up, bring some balance in your life with humor, right? Number five is uh, cooperative commonality. Um, consensus gives dignity. When everybody has a say, it gives dignity to everybody. So there's not such a hierarchy in our sort of traditional, many traditional ways. Um, it's the idea that everybody has a voice. Um, the British used to go crazy when they were trying to negotiate with our Cherokee people because we had a council house, and the council house had to be big enough to house every single person in the village. And um, in these, these meetings, the, the British would write about how crazy it was to be allowing women to speak all the time, and children can get up and speak, and everybody has to have their voice, and sometimes it would take three days to make one decision, right? But um, that's how people give dignity to one another, um, to listen to the voices. And we ran a church this way um, in Carson City for seven years, and, and 
you know, it was, I learned something there. I learned that, you know, sometimes there might be everybody else is saying, let's go this way, let's go this way. And then one person says, I'm not so sure that's the way to go. In, in the American democracy way, it's like, well, let's vote on it. 51% win, 49% too bad, right? But in, in our way, it was, no, that voice is the most important voice in the room right now. Because maybe they see something that nobody else sees. So we need to listen to that voice. Diversity gives strength and balance to life. Uh, the process includes both our heart and our minds. It's not just what we think. It's who we are, how we feel. Uh, orality. Um, words have power, primordial power. Um, words are important. If you use too many, there's a problem. You know, if you've got to use too many words to explain something, then there's a problem, maybe a problem with what someone's saying. Um, traditions are passed orally. Uh, stories are a main vehicle for teaching and sustaining. Past and present time orientation. I talked to you about that already. Um, open work ethic. So meaningful work. Work is needed. Um, so, um, so this is always, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not true from the tribes around here, but um, in our tribes, um, you don't ever want to call the, the, um, the office on Monday morning or Friday afternoon because you won't get anybody, right? Um, it's kind of a joke. And if there's a funeral, then everything closes down, right? So, so it's, um, it's the idea that, um, you know, we work when we need to work, but if we don't need to work, why work? I kind of like that. <laughs> Natural interconnectedness to all creation. So, um, that we are keepers or co-sustainers is the word I like to use. Uh, kind of substitute that for stewardship. Uh, co-sustainers. We're we're involved in sustaining this creation with the Creator and everything around us. Everything has a role to play. We're all important and we're all related. So, um, yeah. Um, and gratitude expressed in ceremony. Um, and then finally, hospitality and generosity. So, um, you know, a lot of our protocol, if you call it that, I guess, uh, involved at different things, powwows and uh, feasts and, you know, potlatches and all this of giving things away, giving things away to strangers, giving things away to people who need it, um, you know. Some tribes, you never give to your relatives. You're not allowed to give to your relatives. You've got to give to other people so you don't show favoritism and those kinds of things. And, and hospitality. And it's, it's um, generally true that um, in most occasions that uh, European settlers were met with hospitality because that's part of our ethic is to be hospitable, to help someone, to, to give them a meal so they can live another day. So why wasn't I taught this in school? So I hear that. Every year, every class I teach when I'm teaching on these kinds of subjects, and I heard it today, talking with students. The same, same question, why wasn't I taught this in school? They didn't teach me this. And I always say, well, there's a reason for that. Because if you teach that in school, it goes against American myth. It goes against the American myth of, you know, everybody, you know, the Europeans settled this country by the sweat, all by the sweat of their brow, and you know, they had to, to work and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and everything, as opposed to, oh, the land was taken from the Indians and a lot of it was already developed, or, um, you know, justify taking the land um, uh, by saying, 
you know, well, they, they didn't deserve it anyway because they are, and then whatever that is. So um, Howard uh, Snyder says in his new book, Jesus and Pocahontas, Gospel Mission and National Mission, Pocahontas portrayals, and she's one of the most famous because I must have met about 8 million descendants of Pocahontas in my life. <coughs> Pocahontas portrayals tell the saga of Indian-white relationships. At first, the Indians are hostile and dangerous, but key figures like Pocahontas bring reconciliation. Eventually, the Indians are subdued and, according to the myth, integrated into a new nation. From the first, two options loom. For the Indians, peaceful integration on the white man's terms, symbolized by Pocahontas marriage and baptism, or forced submission, marginalization, or annihilation. Pocahontas speaks of stealing of native lands and the genocide of native peoples, America's original sin. Though well-known and fully documented, its moral meaning has never been faced. The scattered, impoverished Indian reservations in the U.S. and the underclass of Native Americans uh, in many large U.S. cities remain to bear witness. So the American myth problematizes the other. So um, you know, the Indians are always a problem, right? So um, we're a problem for rejecting our own um, uh, uh, resisting uh, colonialism. So uh, problematizes the other, has a central motif or meta narrative involved in it. It universalizes its own meta narrative um, in whatever system that's in, subordinates anything contrary to the myth, and those who d differ are traitors or unpatriotic. So Native Americans can be terrorists, noble savages, or mascots, but never fully and equally human. So um, from, a, um, from my perspective, American religion promises, according to the Western mind, a future hope of salvation, development, security, civilization, equality, freedom, prosperity, all good things. But in terms of indigenous people, it is mainly brought in balance, oppression, violence, and destruction. So if we look at, um, uh, and there I did it again, I did that. Some characteristics of what um, a number of Native writers, including myself, have, have written and observed about a Western mindset. Um, these uh, are some of those characteristics, that there's a sort of a embedded dualism, both a moral dualism where things are either right or wrong all the time, legal or illegal, heaven, hell, sin, righteousness, success, failure, civilized or primitive, introvert, extrovert, saved, lost, clean, dirty, Weeds or plants, animals or varmints, you know. It's funny because as we're, we're getting to know the, the plant life in our own area that we're in, which is new to us. We've only been out here for, well, at our place for four years and out here for seven years. You know, a lot of these uh, so-called weeds are great medicine. You know, they're, they're medicines, and you know, a lot of the things that people call weeds are actually either food or medicine. And, but somebody classified them as weeds somewhere, right? So now you've got to get rid of them. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Extrinsically categorial, categorical, reductionistic, dividing and classifying, which, which can be a great help if you're trying to divide things up into little pieces and examine them. But then you have to remember that those pieces aren't reality. You gotta put, I call it putting Humpty Dumpty back together again to live out of the whole, not the pieces. Um, hierarchical, in that equality is wrong. 
hierarchy is right, resulting in structured dehumanization by class, race, gender, religion. Utopian, a central shared myth that what happens in a utopian society is that anything that gets in the way of that vision, basically um, there can be a rationalization to, um, to, to be indifferent to it or hate it or whatever else because it comes, uh, becomes subject to that myth. So the myth of progress, for example, is destroying the environment because progress is more important than an environment in, that, in this utopian scenario uh, called the American dream. I got tech folks still here. So if this isn't a simple fix, we'll start taking some questions and things. There we go. Do what? Okay. All right. I can do that. So white supremacists, ultimately white people, the idea that ultimately white people deserve control of all the knowledge, power, and wealth, and, and that that becomes the normal, uh, uh, the white normalcy, we call it. Um, anthropocentric human beings are viewed as uh, apart from creation, like we should all rule over creation instead of be a part of it. Um, triumphalistic, you know, break the soil, harness nature, conquer the mountain. I remember about uh, maybe about six, eight months ago, uh, a guy climbed El Capitan down at Yosemite, and and I thought I'd just listen you know, to the news story to see how they presented that. And in uh, four times they used the word conquer. He conquered El Capitan, right? So, and I thought, well, that really seems silly to me, you know. Now, he's going to walk away, and that mountain's still going to be there, you know. <laughs> so, and he's probably going to feel it a lot longer than the mountain felt it. So, you know, if we come up against nature, we always lose. So, so uh, self-seeking, cooperativeness is uh, necessary but limited. Competition's the norm. Sharing's done from abundance only. <coughs> Excuse me. Patriarchal, dehumanizing of women through lower pay, social roles, sexual exploitive. Some people have called it a rape culture. So how do you put all this into focus? Well, you have to think about what was going on when um, the myth started, when the settler colonials first came here. So one of the things that, that occurred was just on a physical level. Um, and I, I like to, uh, could I get some uh, cooperation here, which maybe people want to get blood flowing? Can I get three people who are five six or under to just come forward real quick? Five foot six and under, come on forward. Yeah, come on down. Come on, five foot six and under. In the meantime, give me. I need three people who are six foot, six foot tall, or over. Three people who are six foot tall or over. Okay, there's one six footer. Any, any other six-foot people in here that would volunteer? All right, come on down. All right, so could I have you five, six, and under people stand right here in a line this way? Face over this way. Facing here. Yeah, face, facing right here. 
Okay, right here. No, you're good. It's a line. All right. All right. This is not a magic trick. Um, you guys come over here and uh, stand right here in front of her. Stop. Okay. And next to him and next to him. So when the pilgrims first arrived in Plymouth, these are the pilgrims. These are the Native Americans. So just the mere physicality, I think, scared them to death. Can you imagine? Okay. Thank you. Let's give them all a hand. Eh? So. So, so there was the physicality. There was the technology. Um, the Indians knew how to survive and thrive in every area, um, and, and the settlers had no technology whatsoever uh, to, to survive in that kind of a land. Um, and it was pretty cold back in those days. So, uh, so uh, that also uh, set up a, a gap. Religion, Native American religion was holistic. You know, it was carried out every day. Um, and uh, land ownership, the only thing standing between European settlers and opportunity for prosperity. Um, there was little or no opportunity in England and some of the other European countries. All of a sudden, they could have land in their name and pass it down to their generations. That was the first time, maybe in many, many generations. And so the only thing standing between their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren's future as landowners and, and, uh, and the land was the Native Americans. Um, resource depletion. So um, in much of uh, Europe, especially England, the hardwoods had been over-harvested, land had been overused and exhausted, streams, rivers, and even ocean bays were being fished out and polluted. So <coughs> all of a sudden it was a quote-unquote pristine wilderness. It wasn't um, wild, really. It was just free. But there's, that was a difference in perspective. So um, kindness, they, uh, as Native people offer kindness and hospitality, it was seen as childlikeness and simpleness, and, and it was exploited. Um, intolerance, Native Americans hold a high level of tolerance in religious constructs and concepts, and rarely argue over the creator in one's own heart. Um, and, uh, and it was different. Um, they didn't like the fact that, that they were so tolerant. So, um, so here's some population estimates. Um, basically, uh, these come out of the book 1491. Um, you can see the land um, uh, that would be uh, North America, about 60, between 60 and 120 million people. When I was in elementary school, I remember being taught that there were between 1 and 2 million Native Americans here. That was way off. Um, the 120 million may be high, but I just want to give you the range. Um, and uh, in 1620, that it will down to about 5 to 10 million, if that were the case. Um, the area that became the contiguous United States, um, about 25 million people. Um, 1,800, about 600,000. 1,900, about 250,000. And you can see it's working its way back up again. So the first thing that happened to Native Americans before the white man ever arrived was a period of destructive weather. So about a 150-year period, um, um, America experienced several super droughts. And um, that time, many of these places that we know as these great superstructures, city structures, et cetera, all emptied. Um, because what they found was that that many people can't live 
that close together because there's not enough resources. So if you can't get water and you can't get food, you can't have um, happy people. So um, uh, a lot of the people split up at that point and began traveling in bands and, and uh, some other uh, small groups. Um, so, uh, so some people estimate as much as 50% of Native Americans were lost in some of these drought-stricken areas. All of America wasn't in a drought, but, um, and uh, so it's still, a lot of this is up for conjecture, um, but we know that there were a series of super droughts and we know that, that it coincides with a lot of the emptying of these great uh, civilizations. The second wave was disease. So as much as 95% of, uh, especially on the East Coast and the, the West uh, Coast, um, people died. Um, but especially on the East Coast, but by whalers and slave catchers, um, uh, almost immediately on contact with these European diseases, um, um, man estimates that it was about one fifth of the world's total population at the time. Um, so uh, a lot of these things happened before they ever saw a white man. And the third destructive wave um, was attempted genocide, which um, uh, uh, here's Columbus's report, right? All these lands are densely populated with the best people under the sun. They have neither ill will nor treachery. And, um, and then I think he says something soon after, like, you know, with just only like uh, uh, a small group of men, we could subdue the whole island. And, and so um, I don't know if you can read that. It says, not so fast. How do we know? You're not terrorists with weapons of mass destruction. So um, Martin Luther King Jr. said, our nation was born in genocide. We're perhaps the only nation which tried as a matter of national policy to wipe out its indigenous population. Moreover, we elevate that tragic experience into a noble crusade. And that's sort of what I'm talking about tonight. Indeed, even today, we have not permitted ourselves to reject or feel remorse for this shameful episode. Um, Bartolome de las Casas um, wrote about the uh, terrible way Indians were treated um, in the uh, Caribbean. Um, he's talking about how uh, the Christians, people calling themselves Christians, uh, have killed so many. I think his estimates are high, but basically uh, it was probably into the millions. Um, he also brought Columbus up on charges in uh, Europe, um, but he was, uh, Columbus was acquitted. So how did America come to be in all of this? Um, through violent theft of land, armed removal and relocation, forced breakup of families, outlawing indigenous religions, bureaucratic policies of both assimilation and racism, and what we see today more often than anything, ecological absorption. This is the boarding schools. Um, so this is, I always call this, um, uh, the uh, first welfare systems in the United States were, you know, basically free land um, by, uh, um, for uh, white uh, males um, who could uh, produce something on the land. They got free land, um, Indian land. And then this is uh, to represent the Indian boarding schools um, from approximately uh, 1878. Um, to about 1968 in America and probably 78 in Canada, 
uh, there was an active um, policy of the, you know, kill the Indian, save the man sort of idea, um, which was a mission slogan, believe it or not, um, to uh, take children and put them in uh, boarding schools, um, take, kidnap them, take the oldest, put pressure from the missionaries and Indian agents um, to send their kids to, and there they were basically um, uh, taught that everything about them was evil, everything Indian was evil. My father-in-law was a victim of a boarding school. A lot of elders we know were victims of boarding schools. Um, they were all similar in that there was uh, widespread abuse, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, torture even, um, starvation, neglect, all of those kinds of things. Um, so that's a legacy that's uh, still with us today, sort of the elephant in the living room. This is, none of this was by accident. This is a president, uh, a letter from President Jefferson to William Henry Harrison. He says to promote uh, this disposition to exchange land, so he wants land, which they have to spare and we want for necessaries. That's things, right? So your um, Apple uh, things, um, which we have to spare and they want and push our trading uses to be glad to see the good and the influential individuals among them run into debt. Because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lop them off by cession of lands. Th in this way, our settlements will gradually circumscribe and approach the Indians, and they will in time either incorporate with us as citizens of the United States or remove beyond the Mississippi. The former is certainly the termination of their history, most happy for themselves. Um, this unfortunate race whom we have been taking so much pains to save and civilize, have by their unexpected desertion and ferocious barbarities justified extermination and now await our decision on their fate. So um, uh, both friends of the natives and those hostile to indigenous peoples conceptualize the issues of colonization and European encroachment on indigenous territories in terms of a problem of the natives. The natives were, according to this view, to blame for not accepting the terms of their colonization. The belief in the indigenous problem was still present in the Western psyche. I told a little joke at dinner. They wanted a story, an Indian story, so I told them a joke. Um, I probably should have read this quote first. Um, president calls up Coyote, and, uh, and he says, Coyote, I need you to take the plane to Washington, D.C. right away. I need to talk to you. So Coyote says, sure. So he hops on a plane. And they're walking in the Rose Garden, and the president says, now, Coyote, he says, I want to talk to you about the Indian problem. And Coyote says, sure. What's the problem? That's the joke. <laughs> Henry Clay, um, known as a statesman, um, said this as, uh, as he was Secretary of State. There was never a full-blooded Indian that ever took to civilization. It's not in their nature. They are a race destined for extinction, and I do not think that they are worth preserving. They are inferior to the Anglo-Saxon race, which is now quickly replacing them on this continent. They are not an improvable breed, and their disappearance from the human family would be no great loss to the world. In point of fact, they are rapidly disappearing, and if government should take proper action, in 50 years from this time, there will not be any of them left. Well, guess what? We're still here. Um, Andrew Jackson was no friend to the Cherokee or any Indian, but he said it this way, they have neither the intelligence 
the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement, which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Established in the midst of another and superior race, and without appreciating the causes of their inferiority or seeking to control them, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and ere long disappear. So if you've got all your presidents making statements like these and your government officials, what do you think citizens were thinking? So Jared Diamond said it this way, after the missionaries come teachers and doctors, bureaucrats and soldiers, the spreads of government and religion have thus been linked to each other throughout recorded history, whether the spread has been peaceful or by force. In the latter case, it is the government that organizes the conquest and religion that justifies it. While nomads and tribes people occasionally defeat the organized governments and religions, the trend over the past 13,000 years has been for nomads and tribes people to lose. But there's always been sort of mixed reviews, right? So you got your Ben Franklin's and you, you have your um, um, uh, Quaker, uh, who founded Pennsylvania, where's my history professor? William Penn, thank you. William Penn and, and others throughout history who are sort of anomalies, right? Who basically see the injustice that's going on and they speak up against it. So Franklin said this, savages we call them because their manners differed from ours, which we think the perfection of civility. They think the same of theirs. Um, so, um, and here's someone defending, um, or here's someone uh, quoting Franklin who was defending the Indians um, and condemning the whites as savages. Um, Franklin's writings on American Indians were remarkably free of ethnocentrism, although he often used words such as savages which carried more prejudicial connotations in the 20th century than in his time. Franklin's cultural relativism was perhaps one of the purest expressions of enlightenment assumptions that stress racial equality and the universality of moral sense of all peoples, among peoples. So, um, so bringing it home, uh, getting a little bit closer, what was going on out here in the Columbia Basin and in the Northwest, there was this competition between these um, uh, European powers and um, basically they were laying, trying to stake out their territory so they could colonize the lands. Um, in 1819, Spain relinquished their claims of the 42nd parallel. Um, uh, you can read all this. Uh, basically, Russia agrees to, to go up north, and now it's down between Britain and the Americans. Um, and in 1843, Britain sort of concedes, and they... They move uh, from uh, Portland uh, at uh, what was Vancouver, Washington, um, up to Vancouver, British Columbia, and sort of uh, start up there. So um, Fort Astoria, which is where uh, basically the, the first real, the, now the Spokane House was built here in 1810, but the, the center of everything was Astoria in terms of the headquarters in 1811. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I want to stress the diversity that was out here in those years. Um, French, Indian, Mohawk, Métis, English, Scottish, Irish, French, French, Canadian, Hawaiian, and Americans. All of these were at Fort Vancouver. Um, all of these are the earliest settlers in the Willamette Valley, um, getting along well with all the uh, Indian people around them, intermarrying, attending their ceremonies. We've read their diaries. Um, and, uh, and there's uh, married to local Indians like the Nez Perce, Blackfeet, Shoshone, Spokane, 
Flathead, Classip, Mahalem, Chinook, Kalapuyan, etc. All of these were peoples from all these tribes in the Columbia Basin here settling the Willamette Valley with their husbands who would either be American, which was the rarest, French Canadian, which was the second most rare, but the most common were Métis, those who were generally um, native and French Canadian, mostly Iroquoian and French Canadian. And for 30 years in the Willamette Valley, which is the real European settlement there, they lived relatively at peace. Um, so uh, at Fort Vancouver, you'd have at least 20 different Indian languages being spoken, um, and Hawaiian, French, English, uh, Chinook. Um, uh, baptismal records include uh, Chinook, Cayuse, um, Clatsop, Nisqually, Chehalis, Kalapuyan, Cowlitz, Okanagan, Pondere, Klitschkat, Hawaiian, etc. Um, and so all these were mixed marriages, which is interesting. Um, here's some of the, um, between uh, the Hudson's Bay uh, and Northwest Company, Fur Company, and the Columbia Basin, uh, Willamette Valley, basically it break, breaks down this way, 40% um, French Canadian, 25% Iroquois, 17% Métis, um, French Canadian and Indian, 8% Western Indians, 5% uh, Eastern Indians, 4% Americans. So it's interesting that um, in mixed marriages, Washington, Oregon, uh, in what we call multiracial identity, um, Washington and Oregon now lead the nation which is really a restoration of what was here to begin with when European peoples arrived. So currently, one, over one-third of the people in the U.S. are ethnic minorities. 2013, over half all children born in the United States were ethnic minorities. So you have importantly the nation in percentages of multiracial marriages. Um, in less than 25 years, over half the people in the United States will be ethnic minorities. Um, I should say people of color is really a better way to say it. The white-only population will continue to decline and eventually be the most recognizable and fastest declining minority in the United States. <clears throat> Chief Seattle said it this way. Basically, we're all, all part of one another. We didn't create this web that ties us together, but we're all a part of it. <coughs> My friend Adrian Jacobs, a uh, Cayuga, in Canada, it says, uh, as in any recovery from debilitating sociocultural problems, the journey begins with, hello, my name is, I have a problem. I'm proposing the Aboriginal culture, he says, worldview, frame of reference, and in this case, Aboriginal Christianity offers hope to Western missionary autism. Aboriginal people are not your problem, we are your cure. And I'm not going to read to this, I don't think my voice would last, but but basically, I'll read the last paragraph. He says, Adrian says, we are the conscious of your technology. We are the humanizers of your institutions. We matter quite apart from your recognition of our worth. We are a threat to entrenched powers that be who refuse to open the doors of opportunities and choice to all. We are a challenge to the mindset of greed and the avarice of Babylon, calling, the equitable dis calling for the equitable distribution resources in the spirit of the Jewish year of Jubilee, we are good medicine for you. 
John Kennedy in that forward, he also said, our treatment of Indians still affects the national conscience. It seems a, base require, a basic requirement to study the history of our Indian people. Only through the study can we as a nation do what, we must, what must be done if our treatment of American Indians is not to be marked down for all time as a national disgrace. And this is William Penn. My friends, there is a great God and power that have made the world and all things therein, to whom you and I and all people owe their being and well-being, and to whom you and I must one day give an account for all that we do in this world. The great God hath written his law in our hearts, by which we are taught and commanded to love and to help and to do good to one another. Now this great God hath been pleased to make me concerned in your part of the world. He's talking to Delaware Native American folks. But I desire to enjoy it with your love and consent, that we may always live together as neighbors and friends. Else what would the great God do to us who hath made us, not to devour and to destroy one another, but to live soberly and kindly together in the world? William Penn, 1681. So that's what I have to share with you tonight. 